born out of necessity, out of self-protection and preservation. Black Populism's story is equal parts inspiring and heartbreaking. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. You're listening to The Cry of My People by Archie Shepp. Our show is the tragic birth of black populism. Last week, Theoria Francos joined us to try to distinguish populism in terms of its political character on the left and on the right. Today, we'll take a look at the development and destruction of black populism in the post-bellum South, discovering the strategies, institutions, and alliances created in the short-lived movement. Joining us is Omar H. Ali, Dean of Lloyd International Honors College and Professor of Comparative African Diaspora History at UNC Greensboro. He's the author of several books, including In the Lion's Mouth, Black Populism in the New South, 1886-1900, to published by the University Press of Mississippi, and most recently, Malik Ambar, Power and Slavery Across the Indian Ocean, put out by Oxford University Press. He's also on the board of directors of independentvoting.org. We'll begin in the hopeful but brief period of Reconstruction, touring through the tumultuous historical landscape that created black populism. But as former slaves and white sharecroppers, both impoverished by the new system of subjugation, began resisting the landed white Southern aristocracy, that aristocracy fought back. Formerly Confederate Southern Democrats colluded with the party of Lincoln to cut a deal, the Compromise of 1877, that kept Republicans in the White House in exchange for the end of Reconstruction. With the federal government in retreat, the plantation class sought to reestablish white supremacy in the South terrorizing the black population, demolishing populist solidarity, and even through armed insurrection, taking back control of political power. And now, the tragic birth of black populism on Interchange. Uh, I wonder if we might sort of back up a little bit first. So trying to be clear as possible on the history, maybe a, a sketch of sorts. Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation January 1, 1863. U.S. Civil War ends May 1865. Reconstruction, therefore, I suppose, begins thereafter and ends sometime around 1877. Dates vary, but generally that's the gist, I think. So maybe Reconstruction is the best place to start, or at least to kind of get a a picture of what's happening immediately after the Civil War. Reconstruction is a good place to start. Um, Of course, you know, African Americans um, have been pressing for uh, liberation, uh, for freedom, uh, from the very beginnings of the period of enslavement um, to take us back to the colonial era. But by the 19th century, um, there are, you know, upwards of 4 million people plus African-Americans. And the Reconstruction era, basically, which is the period usually thought of as after the Civil War, was a revolutionary period in American history to really expand what what we meant or what, what could be interpreted in the founding documents of the nation to be uh, inclusive of, of people of African descent, African-Americans. Um, but it's also the case that um, 
it's it should not be understood as something that happened after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, the Reconstruction actually really begins in, in 1863 mm-hmm. um, as the Union troops take over the northern part of the South and then to begin the process of, of reconstruction, which is basically the rebuilding of both the physical infrastructure, but also the political institutions. Um, and so it's it's the period basically from 1863 and, as you said, uh, to 1877. Uh, with a great compromise of 1876 sort of being a key turning point in the collapse of Reconstruction, if you will. Mm. So uh, that's the period. I think Reconstruction introduces three pieces of revolutionary legislation, the first one being the 13th Amendment, which which gives, if you will, emancipation. Emancipation wasn't, though, given – it was uh, fought for and was earned and taken in many respects. And I think that that's something that I'd like to get back to when we're talking about populism mm-hmm. and people's movements, that uh, it requires action to make legislation happen. Legislation doesn't happen absent of people's movements. So the 13th Amendment, um, then the 14th Amendment, which basically extends um, uh, citizenship to African Americans, and then the 15th Amendment, which basically by 1870 uh, uh, brings in African American men 21 and over uh, into the vote. Um, So it's a revolutionary period because the federal government is making a a commitment to uh, the founding principles and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to, um, to really uphold the ideals of what Americans sort of take to be quintessentially American, which is this notion of liberty, uh, and extend that to black people in the in the United States. So Reconstruction is the idea of uh, what uh, bringing back together the two halves of the nation, reconstructing the nation. It, it, yes, in many ways it's that. It's also uh, like. You know, it's literally rebuilding um, mm-hmm. the parts of the South where the war was fought, in, in, uh, with the exception, if you will, of 1863, that summer in July when you have the largest civil insurrection in American history outside of the Civil War itself, uh, which were the New York City draft riots, mm-hmm. uh, which um, – but mostly the, the fighting takes place in during the Civil War uh, in the South. So it's both, you know, as you say, in some ways trying to bring back, um, you know, the two halves. But from the vantage point of African Americans, it was less about that than more about extending – uh, basic civil and political rights. Hmm. Uh, obviously, the South didn't cotton well to this. No, well, and when you mean the South, of course, you're talking about the ruling class in the yeah, South. Correct, correct. That's right. That's right. It's it's important to say those things. Uh, uh, it is easy to sort of lump things into these general terms, and I do want to I do want to do better at that. That's a, that's an important point. The question, I think, that you know, trying to figure out um, this the sort of period in which uh, a brief span of time, right, 14 years generally, right, uh, there's <laughs> a uh, obviously almost immediate backlash as far as possible in the, uh, you know, planter um, aristocracy of the South and the politics of the South as well, and it, um, that it becomes kind of a political um uh, it's like a taking over state legislatures that, that sort of signaled the, the end of the capacity for anything to happen in Reconstruction in those particular states, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, but you know, the slave states in general. That's right. So uh, the, the sort of the full collapse is by 1877, but there were definitely um, areas that uh, Reconstruction ended a little bit earlier, as you say, because of the takeover of state legislatures that, that would not support the efforts to uh, 
uh, empower and, and extend and protect civil and political rights to African Americans. I mean, what's interesting also is that Reconstruction brought in reforms that actually helped uh, poor white people as well, mm -hmm. like in terms of the education reform. So um, it wasn't just something that was exclusive to African Americans, it, but it was in some ways uh, especially important given sort of uh, slavery in the United States. Um, and so there were institutions that were created in this period of time to try to um, help in the transition to freedom. Uh, but the main reason that you have the ending of Reconstruction is because um, you basically have a lack of political commitment, not not just the resistance from the Southern plantation class, in this, but also Northern, there's less and less Northern political will to support it. There's a depression, if you will, in the 1870s, uh, and there's more and more pressure not to uh, support financially the work of Reconstruction in the South. <clears throat> and then you have ongoing sort of attacks. I mean, um, Stephen Hahn, a uh, historian at the University of Pennsylvania, talks about the paramilitary politics of the late 19th century. I mean, the war may have ended officially, but there was ongoing violence. And, you know, um, African-Americans, um, many of whom had served in the Union Army, had to patrol their neighborhoods to protect their neighborhoods from white um, paramilitary organizations like the Ku Klux Klan um, and other groups that were basically terrorizing black people and also white people who were sympathetic to African-American political and civil rights. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's again, it's just an impossible task to reimagine some of these things. You mentioned the the, the New York City draft riots. I was just uh, looking, I think it was at Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction, and, and it was, uh, again, something I don't know, <laughs> like, like many things, but it sounds like it's a, a horrifying time, a horrifying event, a, you know, a, a massacre of people, of children, and uh, just a thing that's, that I had no clue about, and it just sounds like something that you, I guess, that you don't think could happen, or like it just doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that would happen. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it was extraordinary for, you know, for a number of days, um, you know, uh, there was basically a, a riots, which were, you know, this, this term race riot, I think is a misnomer. It was basically an attack on black people. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, what had happened is that the, the, the targets were initially uh, Republican Party and Union um, sort of offices trying to recruit soldiers. And so, you know, you have a, a mix of Irish immigrants coming in, and, and the first thing they're told to do uh, to become citizens is to, you know, join the Union Army and go down and fight uh, mm. on behalf of the Union. And more and more people were saying, well, who who are the beneficiaries of the war? Um, and it was, became increasingly clear that, that black people were the immediate beneficiaries. And that's what's interesting is that the war started off, to go back to your point about, you know, keep bringing together the, the two halves of the nation. It began as a, as a war to keep the Union together, um, and then it becomes a war of black liberation. And, and what that looked like was that the Union troops, as they move into the South, more and more um, African Americans would run to the Union uh, lines, and the Union became increasingly uh, black. I mean, black people served in very menial capacities, digging ditches and 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 uh, washing clothes and things like that which were necessary logistics of the of the army but then later on started you know uh, served and as soldiers but it became increasingly a war that was seen as not just about keeping the union together but about uh, the liberation of black people so many of these 
um, immigrants coming, you know, came in, they were saying, well, who, I'm, this is not benefiting me. Mm-hmm. And so um, there was a revolt and, and a lot of uh, violence was unleashed, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, uh, orphanages, black orphanages put on fire. People um, hung, lynched on the streets of New York. I mean, black people were literally swimming across the river to get to escape the, the violence that mm. they were experiencing. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm joined by author Omar H. Ali, and our show today is about black populism in the post-Reconstruction South. Yeah. So, uh, so after this period, and 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 actually, let's go back. You mentioned 1876. There was an event that kind of uh, slammed the door on Reconstruction. What was what what happened in 1876? Well, there was a contested electoral college votes, mm. and basically, a deal was cut that the the um so so basically, a deal was cut between the Democrats and Republicans, so that. Um, it, it, it benefited um, the political interests of the two major parties, where um, the Democrats uh, basically got the end of Reconstruction and the Republicans won the presidency. Oh, so uh, 1876 Republicans, again, we have to, I suppose we should straighten that out a little bit. I'm not sure how we understand the p- political parties at the time. Uh, Republican is, uh, I guess that's Lincoln's party, uh, the, and the Democrats at the time are, are the Southern Slave Party. Is that correct? Or yeah, similar, that's, something that's, like that. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so, so when these uh, the situation collapses and this compromise uh, happens, what in general do uh, black people in these areas who recognize that this is going to be a problem? Uh, what what happens? You know, how how do they respond to this? So it's a good question. So basically, again, the, what the compromise of 1876, 1877 is, is basically where you have the Republican um, Rutherford B. Hayes, who's basically given the White House because there were a number of test electoral college votes um, over the Democrat Samuel Tilden with an understanding that the, the Republicans would not support any longer um, the efforts of Reconstruction. Uh, and so there was a deal. That was cut, and black people were sort of were sort of the the losers in terms of uh, of of that of that deal. But um, what African Americans had already entered was into a, was a new arrangement called sharecropping, hmm. and sharecropping was something that basically you have black families living on plots of land. Sometimes they're former slave owners, oftentimes. Um, and they would give over a share of their crop in exchange for living on the land. But it was a very unequal arrangement because the landowners often charge exorbitant interest fees um, and interest on things that the sharecroppers needed, like you know tools and, and other equipment. And so you have you know hundreds of thousands of people moving into sharecropping. And um, while it's not the same as slavery, there is a kind of a debt peonage, if you will, that emerges. And African-Americans throughout Reconstruction had begun developing their own sort of institutions. Um, the black churches were, were now more visible. There was always a black church, if you will, but more underground now. It was more visible and becomes a center point for not just religious and social gathering, but also a center for political development. And so by the end of Reconstruction, you have a number of sort of black institutions in the South, fraternal organizations um, uh, and and um, other f- agrarian institutions that were being formed. And 
there is a period where now African Americans are looking around. There's no longer federal support in terms of protection by former Union soldiers and the Union Army or federal troops now in the South upholding um, black civil and political rights. So by 1877, the last troops are taken out of the South. So African Americans are going to have to, in some ways, fend for themselves in even greater ways than they had to under Reconstruction. And that's where you see sort of the development in the same period of white farmers coming together to develop what would become the populist movement, even as African Americans were starting to develop uh, a movement of their own that would eventually be called the black populists. Yeah, so let's uh, uh, first. Let me, this this may be just the dumbest question in the world, but it just always it always struck me that um, so when when things fall apart in some sense, and it's clear that you're not going to be protected in any way, the South, uh, the Southern uh, former land uh, plantocracy, uh, the people who are now in the state houses, who are making and writing laws, who are, uh, in some sense, I suppose, ignoring those Reconstruction Amendments. Why yeah. Why in the world? And again, I know people live in their homes and they want to stay where they're, they're living, but I, how much of a mass exodus was there to get to the north and was there um did the north itself stop in you know that migration northward i know there was but uh you'd think almost everyone would want to go <laughs> go right well it's a good question actually i mean the the great black migration doesn't really start until 1890 mm, okay. so timing wise it's not it doesn't start until a little bit later so there's a period basically 1877 to 1890 um so it wasn't so easy because of this issue of the sharecropping and sort of people mm. being indebted to the landowners oh, and, okay. and you know so basically you would be uh fleeing from your your debt duties so people were tied to the land in a way that mm. was um that was problematic but also it's not clear like where do you go mm-hmm. you know like where do you go okay you go to the north but where you know how are you going to how are you going to make a living? Right. You know, most people at this period are living off the land, and mm-hmm. it wasn't clear, you know, where. So you have people starting to go north, initially individuals, and they kind of set things up, and then bring more people, family members, etc., up north with them. But that's not until about 1890, and that's actually one of 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 several responses that Black people had to the terrorism that they were uh, subjected to um, in this post Reconstruction period. And, you know, again, Reconstruction itself, but especially after Reconstruction. And um, by 1890, basically, this is one option that is voting with your feet to go, Mm -hmm. to go north. Um, But others were trying to explore leaving not just, you know, not just going north, but leaving the country as a whole. There was there was a a small um, movement that goes back to the early 19th century um, to have African-Americans um, moved to areas like West Africa and parts of the Caribbean. And what's interesting is that that movement, if you will, um, comes about by people who also who want to kick black people out of this country, mm-hmm. but also black people who said, I, this, there's no there's no future for black people here. So let me try to get out. So it was a combination of that. Now, mm-hmm. those were in the sort of uh, there were only a few thousand people who actually did emigrate. But um, but most people didn't have that 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 luxury, if you mm-hmm. will, because they were tied to the land. So many people stayed and and fought, and they fought politically, if not physically, because as you know, as I mentioned, Stephen Hahn's characterization, the paramilitary politics of the late 19th century, people were having outright fights and battles at voting booths. 
So people um, came together, African-Americans came together with white um, people to form a political party called the People's Party mm-hmm. um, in 1890. And that grew out of two separate movements, a white populist movement that was made up of farmers and a black movement made up of both black farmers, but also sharecroppers and cotton pickers, actually. Mm. And they decided to challenge the one-party rule of the Democratic Party, because the Republican Party had some strongholds in the South still, but both, mostly it was the, the Democratic Party which right. uh, was running things, and they tended to favor wealthier elements of the white community. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, again, let's step back just a hair and talk a little bit about populism, and tr- uh, let, me, let me ask you to define what it is and what its goals are. You know, we talk about Democratic Party, Republican Party, third parties, and we have populism. It's not so much a party, it's a, it's a, uh, what is it? Well, it's interesting because um, populism, it, it, it cannot be so easily defined. Mm-hmm. I think that it's mostly the idea is that it's a popular um, revolt, rebellion against the political and economic elites. I think that that's one way of, okay. of talking about it. And so it's a people's revolt um, uh, against against the elite in the country at a time. And we've seen sort of a, a resurgence. Another way of talking about it is it's their democracy movements. I mean, that's what they are. Mm-hmm. And there's been sort of uh, um, various points in American history where you see the coming togethers of, of black and white people to assert a kind of a more democratic uh, politic and distribute power. So uh, populism in this era uh, was directed towards uh, the economic elite in the South, only the wealthiest of the plantation, former plantation owners, um, who basically got the land back. I mean, as Eric Foner, who you mentioned earlier, who was actually my doctoral dissertation advisor at Columbia University, a, a brilliant historian and a, a very, um, a, a, just a, such a talented and gifted teacher and a wonderful author of many, many books. He um, talks about how the, the, the failure and building on the great work of W.E.B. Du Bois, the historian mm-hmm. uh, from the early 20th century, mid 20th century, that the, the failure of reconstruction really rests on in the issue of land, that land was taken and put back into the hands of the plantation class. Mm-hmm. And if you if you own land, you you have power because you have economic power, but that's also very much tied to political power. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is about the organizing of black farmers into a populist movement that for the briefest of time demonstrated racial cooperation in the postbellum South. So, but this is uh, this is mid 1880s. Uh, is that about right? Yeah, right. So, what That's you have, right. uh, it does seem like you've got a um, a a period that is somewhat short-lived, right, in terms of its uh, active capacities. As I think you say, you know, by 1895, the doors closed on this movement as well. So, um, I think at some point you you mention uh, a shift towards trying to be involved in electoral politics. You know, right. So the the shift almost seemed a bad choice in terms of how you, you know, because because the power base obviously is able to write laws and legislation and continue to keep policy in a, in a way that that keeps the African-American out of electoral politics. So uh, where were they most effective in these in these particular associations? Is that really where the most effective uh, movement happened? 
Well, I think one way just to kind of give you an overview is that Mm -hmm. black populism was a movement of black farmers, sharecroppers and agrarian laborers, basically people who were paid um, basically seasonal workers Mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, in harvest time. Um, But this movement basically coalesces by 1886 Mm -hmm. and sort of the main organization that brings these different disparate groupings of people together is the Colored Farmers Alliance. Mm -hmm. And then by about 1890, they many of those leaders are saying we need to move into the electoral arena because we'll, we'll, we need to enter there to be more effective in terms of impacting on legislation. And that's where they dovetail with the white populist movement. Okay. And so the People's Party emerges there. And so that becomes the main expression uh, along with what's called fusion. So, for instance, here in North Carolina, um, black people mostly voting via the Republican Party and white people voting the People's Party ran shared candidates. Um, and they took over the legislature. Uh, mm. And so that was one instance where you see some success. And they they changed some of the laws to make them more democratic in terms of democratic with a small d, that is. Mm-hmm. And there was a period of several years where you have that. But then this all comes sort of collapses in North Carolina in, in 1898 with the Wilmington riot. Um, where the white Democratic Party basically says no more of this, and they basically, um, it's a coup d'etat, basically. It's an armed uh, overthrow of the government there and signals the end of black populism in this state. But in Texas, it it takes until about 1901. Um, So basically from 1886 to about 1900, you can see the movement alive and kicking in different ways, but then collapse at slightly different points um, of time. And, And... I think that, you know, there was success, for instance, in East Texas as well. Uh, Lawrence Goodwin, professor at at Duke, um, wrote about this movement in East Texas, where you see black and white um, populists working together and, and, and assuming offices. So there were some pockets where they are successful, but they're brutally, brutally um, attacked. And those attacks you see in the rise of lynchings across mm-hmm. the South starting in 1890. And then you just see like, if you look at like a, a graph, just sort of really increasing. And that's those are the reported lynchings. But there was also the media campaign to really try to divide black and white people that were trying to figure out ways of working together to try to sort of scare white people and say this is a new reconstruction this is you know the ending of white people's power and really uh, sort of just base stuff um characterizing african americans in the in the worst and almost animalistic ways mm-hmm. uh, absolutely racist so there was a propaganda machine that was put in place by the democratic right. party as well so there was multiple attacks on this on these tentative efforts to try to c- create which older scholars would talk about a biracial movement It's time for a break. Our music is The Chaste by Archie Shepp. My guest is Omar Ali, author of In the Lion's Mouth, Black Populism in the New South, 1886 to 1900. We've been covering a lot of historical ground to understand the ways the plantation class was able to win the War of Reconstruction and in the process, crush the nascent political and organizing strength of black populism. Stay with us. More with Omar Ali after a few minutes of Archie Shep when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on WFHB's Interchange. My guest is Omar H. Ali, Professor of Comparative African Diaspora History at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and author of several works on black populism in the last decades of the 19th century. In our first segment, we surveyed the post-Civil War Reconstruction period and its end in the late 1870s, along with the resurgent power of white Southern elites that both necessitated and sought to destroy black populism. Next, we'll focus on the movement itself, as Omar Ali details some of the complicated circumstances and leaders behind black populism. And then, turning to the present, we'll explore the failures of the recent political past, the persistent cultural and economic injustices that black populism was built to overcome, and how the late 19th century movement can inform our perspectives on and responses to the most recent resurgence of white political power on the national stage. As you and I were talking before, I've been researching Cuba as well, and it does dovetail with the same period, uh, the same terminologies, the same metaphors used to describe uh, Cubans as well as African Americans uh, as not only savages, but then children, then weak, then wild, then, you know, uh, oversexed and, you know, everything you can think of. It's the same language. Uh, used in you know for for the imperial project in Cuba. So this is this is what struck me. I was like, this is happening at the same time, um, and it obviously makes sense now. Now hearing you talk about it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because I you know a lot of the language that is used under Jim Crow and the ways in which black people were characterized were exported Mm. um, internationally. I mean, the system of Jim Crow was used as a model for the government of South Africa's apartheid Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Um, But African Americans and black people across the world as they're fighting for freedom and or independence um, are gonna be dealing with sort of these, sort of the, the, the propaganda machine and sort of, also remember, I mean, you know, the 19th century really seizes the rise of, of, of scientific racism. Right. And there was a lot of efforts to try to create sort of um, a, sort of a science, so-called, around the inferiority of black people, sure. um, which has obviously been completely debunked, obviously, with, you know, genetics and all that in the 20th century. Um, but I think there was multiple fronts to try to keep black people in their quote unquote place right. economically because ultimately the system of 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 Jim Crow white supremacy was about the exploitation of black people's labor that's what it was about mm-hmm. as Du Bois talks about this it was fundamentally about that it's not just a cultural thing and, and people um people were targeted and and I think that this was a a, a phenomenon we see across the the African diaspora globally yeah, it's uh, it's just um, yeah. It's, uh, in some ways, I don't like doing the show that I do because it's just it always is just an amazing and horrifying uh, world that and and this country in particular and this here this period and and it's not like it's not like it's necessarily gone away. Obviously, this is mm-hmm. this is what we're we're struggling with still. Uh, I was just just trying to look at dates, right? Trying to understand the the, the timelines and trying to understand the uh, the the spatial or the temporal distance from here to there. It's it's not very far, and and I think what Plessy versus Ferguson's eighteen ninety six. 
Um, mm-hmm. Civil Rights Act is 64, is that right? Uh, voting, voting Rights That's Act? Mm. Civil Rights Act, yeah, yeah. Voting Rights Act, 1864 and 65, so, 1964 and 1965. Yeah, yeah. so, and there's a, there's a sense generally that, that um, I don't know what, what's happened or what's changed necessarily. Um, you know, we're, we're back in, a, I guess, a backlash period, I suppose, and, and maybe mm-hmm. at, the, at the tail end of this we can talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I, again, I think this, this period is, has been interesting to me all, uh, ge- generally, generally because it has sort of dovetailed in a lot of ways with the, this last decade of the 19th century. Um, so we can look at particular leaders that we still know or we still talk about or still think about history boiled down to a few men and women generally is how we end up thinking about it. So uh, you got Booker T. Washington, right, who, who at the time is, is still someone we, we understand or know in history, uh, but uh, very problematic to us now, I suppose, uh, you know, cast down your buckets where you are in his 1895 speech known as the Atlanta Compromise, which was kind of a you know, bootstrap in your own space and take care of yourself, but don't, I guess, you know, don't, don't rock the boat, uh, compromise. And, and then Du Bois coming, you know, nearly on the heels of that, uh, you know, uh, being against that, but then also establishing his kind of talented 10th, um, idea, which is, uh, as much a kind of, uh, elitism to say, you know, we're every bit as good as, uh, any white person in this arena, I suppose, and we, we need, and we need to show it. So, you, you know, in these two historic figures, we see the struggle of how to be uh, black in America, how to be black within white America. And, mm-hmm. you know, I guess, you know, Du Bois struggling his entire life to figure that out. And, of course, I suppose not really, not really ever knowing how and, and saying at the end, there's no way that this country works for me. Yeah, that's where he he ends up. I mean, I think it's it's important also to complicate these two, <laughs> in the sense that you yeah, know we're compl- it's very complicated, right? Yeah. Well, I think one thing to know is because I think that they've been characterized in exactly like the way I think what mm-hmm. you're saying is is true, and it's important to know that Booker T. Washington did a lot of things um, behind the scenes. So, mm-hmm. for instance, he funded several lawsuits that were trying to attack some of the Jim Crow mm. uh, laws at the time. Right. And and Du Bois had his, you know, sort of his limitations. I mm-hmm. mean, he he moved away from the talented tenth idea sure, yeah. um, later in his life, as as I think you mentioned. But there were other uh, voices uh, in the mix. I mentioned Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. Barnett, um, African American uh, journalist, uh, who really sort of brought out in some ways issues of uh, the issues of, of lynching. But also, in some ways, um, looking at um, gender uh, through the lens of gender dynamics um, in terms of the African-American experiences, I think it's important. I think just sort of in common sort of parlance, we talk about the black experience, the white experience, the black, you know. Mm -hmm. But, of course, each of these things have many different elements within it. Right. and, the, and people change over time, right? And people right. change over time. So right. Du Bois is certainly somebody who's changed over time. Oh, yeah. But there were different views about which way should the black community go. And I think that these, Booker T. Washington and Du Bois give expression to at least two different 
uh, perspectives. And then there were those who were, you know, saying, let's, we have to leave. And ultimately, that's where Du Bois kind of lands. And he, he has the privilege to be able to actually leave as part of, of his experience. But yeah, so multiple voices, intellectual yeah. traditions. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit. I, I know um, you've written a little bit about, I guess, George Washington Murray as well. Uh, he's uh, an example of um, a black politician or someone who becomes a, um, is it a congressman? Uh, in, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little in, bit about him? Yeah. So there are these, I think it's helpful to put some faces and mm-hmm. people to the name black populism. So yeah. um, he was one of a number of figures that I looked at. He was um, somebody that had experience in the Colored Farmers Alliance in South Carolina and uh, was one of those people that was trying to build some bridges and makes his way in politics and becomes uh, basically um, the last people in, in the South uh, to be elected to Congress, who was African-American mm-hmm. up until, you know, the, the 1960s. And so it is a long period of non-representation right. of African-Americans at that level. Um, so, you know, he was one of a, of, of a handful of people that um, so that we know about in great detail. I mean, part of the problem is that many of the people that were part of the movement, just as is the case actually with the civil rights movement later on, were just ordinary people. I mean, right. Tens of thousands of people, but here in North Carolina, Walter Patillo was somebody who, again, was a lecturer, if you will, a, a spokesperson for the Colored Farmers Alliance, was involved in the Black Baptist Church, was um, involved in a multiple capacities, also as an educator, hmm. and then would uh, call for basically um, him and others for the formation of, a, of an independent party, which becomes the People's Party. In, and there were some women, too, Ludi Lytle, uh, who was actually in sort of the Midwest, she was in Missouri and in, in Kansas, uh, actually becomes the first woman to be practicing law in the South. Hmm. Um, but her father was very much involved in the Kansas People's Party. Um, and so you have black men and women uh, participating as leaders and trying to figure out ways of navigating sort of the the tumultuous sort of and paramilitary politics of the late 19th century. Hmm. Uh, so those are some of the leaders and uh, of the black populist movement. Well, well I was just looking uh, up today the, the, the stat that there's been about 1,900 people to have served in the U.S. Senate and uh, nine have been African-Americans. Yeah. That's the, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and even, yeah. even since uh, I think uh, uh, six, maybe just six since the 70s. You know, so That's it's right. the the That's idea right. that there's some difference here uh, politically, anyway, uh, has to be challenged just on that statistic alone. Yeah, right, right. It's not just a, a southern phenomenon, right. I think is what you're alluding to. It's it's a it's a national phenomenon. Yeah. And and on and the Civil War itself, as you know, just to go back, is that it, it wasn't just the North versus the South. Mm. I mean, the North had many interests in the South. Sure. I mean, the sort of the insurance companies that were tied to the plantation uh, economies, uh, the the production, mm-hmm. uh, right. Of, of goods from the South, raw materials. So there were a lot of interests. And there was actually even, there was a, a, a call by someone in the New York State Legislature for secession mm. <laughs> at the time of the beginning of you know the Civil War. So there were, it, it, ironically, right? I mean, right. sort of, you think New York. So there was, there was dissent within the North and within the South against uh, the Union in the North and against the, the, the Confederacy in the South. Hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Omar Ali, author of In the Lion's Mouth, Black Populism in the New South, 1886 to 1900, joins us to talk about the populism of independent voters in America. (laughs) 
Well, so we're in a weird place, obviously, still. We're still confronted by this, and now we have uh, Donald Trump in the White House, and whatever Donald Trump is, you can see the people around him uh, espousing and and being very strongly white supremacist in their own uh, politics and how they're sort of pushing us in domestic and foreign policy as well. And we had, what, in 2008, a crash that decimated black wealth uh, to the tune of something like 48% of black wealth in America was lost in the the recession, uh, far, far greater than, than obviously the percentage of white uh, wealth that was lost. I think uh, in 2010, the median wealth for white families was $124,000 and for black families, $16,000. Mm, and wow. so when mm. you when you recognize that there this has happened that almost seemed intentional i mean i you know you know it's one of those those things where you're just like how is it that you know black wealth is is already so minuscule and hampered obviously because of you know not ever having any money because the, it was all uh, first it was slave slave wage and uh, slave labor then wage wage slavery and debt peonage as you say and then never mm-hmm. having any land never being able to yeah. build up any wealth and then all of a sudden uh, uh, what there was was is erased. Right. I, I One thing also just to note is there's always been a small sliver of a free black um, community in mm. the United States, even in the South. I mean, John Hope Pr- Franklin talks about the free mm. black population and even in North Carolina in the South, um, going back, you know, to the late um, 18th century. So we have in some ways, I think it's uh, the case that you can say overall the black population in America is disproportionately poor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, I think there's some probably equivalent to the, the saying about when Paris sneezes, you know, Europe catches a cold when, you know, there is a depression and Wall Street crashes, uh, you know, black people feel it disproportionately more right. than, than, than your average white person. But at the same time, poverty does touch millions upon millions sure. of white people. Sure. But it's the disproportionality mm-hmm. of, of poverty uh, among African-Americans, which is obviously problematic. I mean, poverty should should not be a, a, an issue in a country so wealthy as ours, but um, it remains the case. So, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, as you're pointing out, I think the crash in 2008 really made it very difficult for African Americans. But, you know, with the current, the current phenomenon, the 2016 election should mm-hmm. be understood less about, in some ways, Trump himself, mm-hmm. but more about the people who voted for him. And I think that that's an important distinction and the cabinet that he's surrounded himself with, right, the people. I think I think the reason why he was elected is because African-Americans and white Americans and all Americans have a clear sense that the political parties are really more interested in themselves. And so there was there was a revolt in this country, if you will, among more white people against the establishment. And Donald Trump was a very sort of a very uh, rudimentary and uh, rough tool um, that they used to kind of push back against the elite. So there was a kind of populist explosion. Um, but that kind of populist explosion also produced, if you will, Barack Obama uh, in 2008. I mean, it was independence uh, broke for Obama in 2008 and independence slightly broke for broke more for a trump in 2016 but the the american people have asserted their voice using what is available to them mm. 
Um, and 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 I think that given the sort of the the, the very tight control that the, the two major parties have over the electoral process, from just getting your name on the ballot. I mean, right. so for instance, in North Carolina, if you you have to get about a hundred thousand signatures in order to just get your name on the ballot to run for statewide office, while the Democratic and Republican parties don't have to gather any. Right. So there are ballot access laws that make it very difficult if you're not a major party candidate to just get your name on the ballot. Imagine all the other ways in which they exercise their power. You know, we know about redistricting and the gerrymandering that happens, but there's a deal that's often cut between the Democrats and Republicans that go back to the Compromise of 1876, if you will, where they basically support each other's continuation um, and uh, and they're more interested in their self-preservation than in the interests of the American people. So the Democratic Party is, you know, has become uh, sort of the party that people of color, uh, black people in particular, sort of affiliate with, has, see, has seen increasingly as a failure. Um, just because there are more black people elected, it does not translate necessarily into political and economic power in black communities, as we we're talking about. And a critical moment to go back to is actually the 1972 Gary Convention in Indiana, mm. where you know African Americans came together to say which way should we go in terms of of a, as a community as a whole, as diverse as we are as a community as a whole. And there were three paths that were basically being discussed. One was to stay with the Democratic Party and try to get more black elected officials through elected that way. The second path was to create an all black political party. Uh, and the third one was to create a multiracial third party. Um, and ultimately what happens is that the Democratic Party option is is in, is what's what's taken up. Hmm. And since that time, you've seen like, you know, like a 400 percent increase in black elected officials. But you also see like a 400 percent increase in poverty. Um, and poverty is, is something that, again, disproportionately affects African-Americans, uh, citizens in this nation. And um, while you have a thin black middle class and wealthy class, most black people, you know, are living in poverty or in, in very challenging economic uh, circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so that's a failure of the Democratic Party because that that option really did not go through, not to speak of the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party has its own issues and black people have moved away en masse away from that party, you know, starting in the 1930s and then again in the 1960s. Um, so I think what we saw in 2016 was a, a populist kind of revolt against the establishment and, and Trump was the, the, the sort of the person who won. I mean, Bernie Sanders was iced out of the Democratic Party. I mean, the sort of the whole superdelegates is a very undemocratic process in mm -hmm. the Democratic Party. And many people wanted him. Um, who knows if he had gotten the, the if he had gotten the nomination, if we would have Donald Trump in office. I don't know. Uh, but it, clearly, Donald Trump is is not a typical Republican. He kind of came from the outside in the same way that Barack Obama did, quite frankly. He wasn't supposed to have gotten the nomination. Hillary Clinton back in 2008 was supposed to have gotten the nomination. But he reached out across Across the board, uh, he reached out to not only Democrats, but Barack Obama, you'll remember, reached out to Republicans as well, and also to independents. And it was that which brought him into the White House. And open primaries facilitated that uh, for people to give expression to that 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 sentiment. Mm. So that's I think that's what's happened. I think now people are trying to figure out what to do. And I, just to say that on March 18th, I'm actually helping to organize a national convention in New York City that's bringing together independents from across 
the country. So this is something that is dear to me, both as a scholar, but also in, uh, personally. I, I'm very committed to keeping and opening up the political process. And so that's going to happen. It's being sponsored by independentvoting.org mm. in, on March 18th. But if anybody's out there who's an independent, you know, might consider going online, checking it out. But there are many people who want to open up the process. And it's not just around people who are progressives or conservatives. It's about people who are concerned about our electoral system being rigged. I mean, right. Trump actually has that right. Our system is rigged, but not for the reasons that he's talking about, but because the Democratic and Republican parties have created a monopoly mm -hmm. over the process. And that's what has produced him. Well, what uh, the, what uh, is a populist movement now? If, you, if we talk about the, the populism of Bernie Sanders or a populist movement uh, that uh, fired up independence to vote for Barack Obama, what are there parallels between a populist movement that we've seen here other than other than sort of anger or other than other than resentment other than disenfranchisement in a sense other than the sense that you're not a part of the political system populism in the 19th century versus what we see as populism now what 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 happens with it? It seems a, a force that you have to mold or that has to become something else, something used, uh, and that's yeah. uh, rather than than an actual again than an actual thing that that continues or grows or has has its own uh, goals. Even I'm not even sure yeah. if if there is that sort of thing there. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's also populism looks different in different mm -hmm. periods of time, just as progressivism looks different. I mean, mm -hmm. I happen to be politically progressive, but a progress progressive today needs to be to be different, I think, than what it looked like in the 1960s, for mm -hmm. instance. It's not simply just it's not just protesting. I, I've gone to millions of not millions. I've gone to <laughs> right. you know dozens and dozens of protests, mm -hmm. and I've participated and I've done that. But it's also about figuring out new ways of relating to people. I think that's what mm. is important. Both if you're uh, sort of more ideologically conservative, and also if you're to the you know if you're less if you're to the to the left. But I think that the thing that independence and what you're seeing a kind of a new emergence of populism is concerned about in this country is the process. And that ironically goes back to the founding of the nation because the, the, the call for no taxation without representation is actually a process issue. Hmm. And we've been sort of hoodwinked uh, and bamboozled uh, to think that what we need to focus on are these sort of issues like education reform, you know, national security, uh, you know, the health care reform. Those things are critical. But unless you have a process that's more open and inclusive of different voices and different uh, entities, it's meaningless. Mm. And so in some ways, there's greater recognition that what needs to be attended to is opening up the political process, making mm. it easier for people to get on the ballot, to open up the primaries where they're closed, to redistrict in ways that are equitable, um, to include independents and third party candidates in debates, mm -hmm. in, you know, presidential debates, but local debates as well. So there's a host of structural electoral reforms, if you will. And that is hard to, in some ways, get people all excited about. So <laughs> right. You know, tr that's very legalistic, and right. but Trump got people excited by sort of making these sort of broad claims about the establishment and all that and going very negative in some cases. But to go back to the idea, you have to look at the base of the people who supported him. I can't believe that, you know, the 60 million or so people who voted for him are all, you know, racist, homophobic, you know, xenophobic you know, anti-Muslim, you know, all those things. I think that they were, again, using him as a tool, a blunt tool to, to attack the political establishment, just as many people who supported Bernie Sanders were doing. Mm. Um, but I think the new populism is, try is something that is a creative process. 
it's not going to just happen organically. So efforts to bring together independents and people who see themselves as sort of, you know, maybe maybe a little bit more progressive here, maybe a Republican or conservative on that end, but have a concern about the process coming together and creating new ways of giving expression to that. Again, the Gallup poll shows, again, 43% of Americans self-identify as independent. It's not a small thing. It's a plurality of Americans, and that's especially the case among younger voters who don't, in some ways, they they see parties as sort of more suspiciously. Mm -hmm. So there's a cultural sort of thing that's happening in America, and Trump is, if you will, the beneficiary of this, um, of this cultural phenomenon, the distaste for parties and Mm -hmm. sort of an anti-party movement, if you will. But your point about it can't just be negative, it has to be positive. It's like, what are the possibilities of creating coalitions, creating alliances between people who in the past may not have seen eye to eye, but have a lot in common in certain respects, whether they're economic interests or um, or other interests that they can create something positive. Is there a black populism now? I think that there are people who are, there's a growing number of, of African Americans who are independent. The Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies talked about, you know, a discernible shift mm. among African Americans a number of years ago, and that continues. My own my own kind of polling that I've done in North Carolina uh, demonstrates that, uh, as well as colleagues uh, both in New York but also in Arizona, that there's growing independence among independents. Uh, I mean, uh, among voters in America, mm-hmm. and that's true among African Americans as well. They, black people tend to more affiliate with the Democratic Party, but there is growing and growing dissatisfaction. We saw that a lot in the press, press reports among especially younger African Americans and Black Lives Matter is in some ways an expression of that sort of frustration with the establishment. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a political movement, an electoral movement per se, but a lot of the people who were, you know, uh, who were vocal in that movement um, were in some ways saying that there's a problem with the establishment, which is another way of saying the major parties. It's independents and outsiders are responsible for every major social, political, economic change, progressive change in American history, going back to the Liberty Party of the 1840. So, The expansion of black civil and political rights is first called by independence and, you know, uh, the expansion of economic justice uh, among white people is is first called by independence, outsiders, civil and political rights, the ending of Jim Crow, women's rights, you know, environmental rights. All these things came from the outside. And then at a certain point, the insiders, the political establishment and elected officials will kind of then put in their word to support movements. But it's been the outsiders that have been the engine of change in American history. Please look down and see my people. That's our show. Thanks to Omar H. Ali, Dean of Lloyd International Honors College and Professor of Comparative African Diaspora History at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro on the board of directors of independentvoting.org. Our closing music is Archie Shep's interpretation of Duke Ellington's Come Sunday. Next time on Interchange, Do the Arts Survive Revolution? In 2016, Netflix produced Four Seasons in Havana, a miniseries based on a quartet of crime novels published in the 1990s by Leonardo Padura. It's a Cuban-Spanish co-production with original footage from Havana and Cuban actors. What can a 1920s capitalist genre fiction tell us about Cuba under Castro? We'll also discuss the films of director Tomas Gutierrez Alia and look at work by writer Alejo Carpentier. 
Do the Art Survive Revolution, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon, Jennifer Brooks is board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.